Hello, hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Thrive Alive. I am your host, Nurse Jasmine. And today we will be talking about mental health. We have a very special guest with us today, but before I introduce her, I am going to give you guys an icebreaker. So get your fingers ready, start typing. And the question is, what is mental health? What is mental health? Whatever it means to you, go ahead and drop it in, drop it in the chat. And as you guys are answering, I am going to tell you guys a little bit about our special guest. Joining us today is Dr. Rachel Boutte. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine at Rush University Medical Center. She obtained her PhD in counseling psychology from Virginia Commonwealth University and her Master of Divinity from Memphis Theological Seminary. Dr. Boutte investigates the influence of sociocultural and demographic factors on health outcomes. She examines the ways that systemic and interpersonal forms of discrimination shape attitudes and beliefs about engagement in health-promoting behaviors. Dr. Boutte was recently funded by the Chicago Chronic Condition Equity Network, aka SEEN, to develop and pilot an intervention to examine the influences of gendered racism on black women's health behaviors. So, Dr. <laughs> Rachel Boutte, <laughs> I am so excited to have you as our very first guest. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I am going to just throw the first question at you. Just jump right in. <laughs> so um, May was Mental Health Awareness Month. How would you define mental health? Well, first, thank you for that very kind introduction. And I'm so glad to be here. I think this is awesome work that AFN is doing, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, mental health is a little tricky. Like, what is it? Because for me, mental health is just health. Mm. Um, so I think that that distinction between mental and physical health is a bit arbitrary and it's also not very helpful uh, because it opens the door for things like stigma and it makes things like insurance really complicated mm. when it comes to care and access. So that's kind of like my soapbox answer. <laughs> mental health is just health. Um, but if we think about what does it mean in relation to say mental illness, for example, then I would say mental health means having a connectedness. Mm. It means being able to navigate your environment and the things that life throws at you in an adaptive, healthy way. Basically just being able to deal. We know life is gonna present obstacles and so having strong mental health means that when that happens, you have resources in your toolkit and you kind of know what to do. I like that. <laughs> mental health is just health. I like that. Awesome. So um, how does mental health connect directly to physical health? So you kind of you kind of <laughs> answered that a little bit. But what is the integrated whole? Yeah, it's, you know, like I mentioned, it's sort of this arbitrary thing to try to separate mental health from physical health. If we think about it, all of us are existing in bodies and we have a brain. Mm in a mind, mm -hmm. and that's one whole thing. There's no way to separate the two from one another. 
Um, and so a lot of our experiences, even if we take something really simple, like if we think about pain, let's say you stub your toe or you touch a really hot pen, you know, there's that little gap in time from when it happens to when you say, ow, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. oh no, right? That's the connection, right? Mm -hmm. So this physiological experience, you touch something hot, or you have a stimuli that caused pain, it takes some time for that information to travel to your brain and tell you, hey, this is pain, mm -hmm. this is too hot. Um, so everything that we do is, is both, it's kind of a both end. Um, and I think you can also think of it like, this continual relationship. So if we're having something happen with our mental health, let's say we're feeling really down, feeling depressed, um, I think that we know that's going to affect how we care for ourselves physically, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. When we're feeling down, it may be difficult even to get up and go from the couch to the kitchen. Right, even that could right. be hard. Mm -hmm. So something like exercise might feel extremely difficult during a time like that. So it affects how we care for ourselves and at the same time, if we have something going on with our physical health, that affects our minds, mm -hmm. right? I've worked or spent a lot of time working with patients who have different kinds of chronic illnesses. And a lot of the folks that I've worked with, they have no history of any mental health concerns. And so when I see them, you know, maybe they've just had a stroke or maybe they've got a new cancer diagnosis. So all of the sort of illness is happening in the body, mm -hmm. but I'm seeing them because that affects our state of mind, Absolutely. whether it's pain, whether it's fatigue, or even just the knowledge like, hey, my life is going to be different now because of this physical, physical problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, um, that's really good. And I'm glad that you um, are working with people who have physical, um, physical conditions, because I think as a society, we always just think of it as two separate things. And um, the truth is, it's it's all connected, like you said. So um, I'm really excited about your work and what you do and just grateful for uh, people like you. I just wanted to throw that out there <laughs> before we continue. <laughs> um, okay, so next question. Ooh, this is my favorite. Could you talk to us about your research and how it connects mental health, body image, and culture? Sure. Um, this also, the other question that reminds me, I think you would ask me to talk about an experience, my own experience with this connection, yes. and I forgot about that. Should I do that now? Sure. <laughs> it reminded me because it's related to that, like the connection yes. between the mental and physical health. Um, yeah, when we were prepping for this, you kind of asked, like, okay, did I have any personal experience with the connection between these two things? And I thought, oh my gosh, every day. Mm. Right? Once you have this sort of frame, you can see how so many of your experiences are because of this relationship. Um, but the one that most comes to mind for me happened, oh gosh, I guess almost six years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, but I was at, I was in the middle of graduate school, so not an easy time, mm -hmm. a stressful of time, the middle of my PhD program. Um, and my mom had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's mm. and she died. I'm um, sorry. Thank you. And so it was, you know, there's no good time, of course, to lose a parent, but this was a really precarious time because I was like in the middle of my program. So I like had my master's, but I was approaching these comprehensive exams, which mm -hmm. are like, tests and writing papers and all these things and it's a milestone that you have to pass in order to move forward. Um, 
So when I found out, I was just prepping to take a little bit of time off from school. I was going to go to Memphis and spend time with her mm -hmm. um, in hospice care. And then I get the call that she's mm. died kind of abruptly. So, of course, you know, everything comes to a full stop. And um, I go home for a few weeks and then I come back. I return to school and I sort of try to keep going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I got stuck. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of stuck in grief. And then as a person who had dealt with depression off and on, then that came on in addition to the grief. And it was at a point where I was like, I don't even know if I can keep going. I don't wow. know if I can keep doing mm -hmm. this. Um, and I remember talking to my dad and he was like, well, you, you're not going to come home. <laughs> you're going to stay. Right, right. You're, you're on a mission. Mm -hmm, you're there mm -hmm. for a reason. And you're going to keep doing that. So I was like, okay, we have to figure this out. Um, and so for me, one of the things that was very helpful was movement. It was activity. Um, we have this phrase that we use in health psychology, behavioral activation. And it basically just means making yourself do something, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. standing up, even if it's just for 10 seconds. Right, right. Um, and so that sort of making myself just go for a walk, stand mm -hmm, up, mm -hmm. leave the house, like that was actually the thing that sort of got me unstuck yeah so it became very real for me in that time like okay this like mind body thing because my mind was not there I just right. wasn't I hadn't processed the grief fully mm -hmm. I'm like in the middle of this stressful graduate program um but moving my body exercising yoga these different things like that's actually that's what helped me I had a therapist too um, but that didn't get me unstuck by itself. So mm -hmm. it became very real, like how these two things are connected. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. That is, losing anyone is, you know, hard. But yeah. a parent, especially going through an already stressful right. time in your life. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, but I think... Um, movement like you said it I I had a similar experience when I was going through treatment um I just would say you know what jazz go outside get some yeah. sunlight go for a walk yes. and I didn't even realize that I was helping myself yeah. until I came until I was done walking yeah. and I'm like wow I you know I feel better yeah so um it really is you know we as uh healthcare professionals mm -hmm. and clinicians we often stress how important uh, movement is. It's not just because you should be a certain BMI. Um, it really does help connect the mind and the body and help with total healing. So thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, so, oh, your research. Research. Yes. Body image. Culture. <laughs> so wait, let me, let me say this before yeah. you start. Um, we often, when we think of doctors, especially in the African-American community, we think of your, you know, your typical uh, primary care physician. Um, we don't think about people like Dr. Boutte, who is conducting research. And another thing about us as African-Americans, we're afraid of research. We're afraid of studies and um, being a part of them because of things that have happened in the past. So I am so glad that Dr. Boutte is here to um, share what she does in and for our community to help us get a better uh, understanding and feel a little bit better about 
what research is and why it's important. Thank you for saying that. Yes, it's, I think we should never bring up research without bringing up the harms, mm -hmm. the wrongs, um, all of the unethical things that have gone on in many communities, especially the black community. And so, yeah, there are, there are not a ton of black researchers. Um, so we're kind of in a small group. And it's so important though, it, it's so critical to have our voices in the room mm -hmm. and at the table, in the space. Um, so my research, and it's, it's funny because it exactly demonstrates the point why it's important for us not only to be the ones doing the research, but also to be involved. So I, my graduate school lab was primarily about um, eating and weight mm -hmm. stuff. So we looked at eating disorders, we looked at weight loss interventions, that kind of thing. And it's this it's a very well-known phenomenon, but black women tend to lose less weight in weight loss interventions compared to all other groups. So Latinx women, white women, anyone else, um, black women lose the least weight, mm. um, but black women also struggle the most with mm. their weight. So this is like the definition of a health disparity. So I became very interested in this in graduate school um, and it informed my doctoral dissertation project where I was looking at body image. I was trying to figure out if maybe body image was the sort of missing link. Is there mm -hmm. something about that? Is that the reason? So I did all these focus groups and set up this whole thing thinking I was gonna try and understand weight loss interventions. And what the participants ended up talking about was stress. Mm. And not just stress in general, they talked about racism related stress. Wow. They talked about showing up in places, their places of employment, for example, and experiencing like hair discrimination. Mm. They talked about the difficulty of facing racism and sexism at the same time. Um, so that completely shifted my whole like life plan and mm -hmm. trajectory. I was like, oh, I, this is, I have to figure this out. Right, like this right, is right. what I need to spend my time doing. Um, because this is so important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they also talked about the participants who were all black women. They basically said that um, all these other health problems and issues all come back to this, the mm. same thing that basically is just hard. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. hard to manage all these competing demands um, and that there's not a space for black women to feel safe, to feel valued, to feel seen, to feel heard. And that affects everything else, mental health, physical health, all the things. So what I now know, like from having studied this for several years, is that they were capturing this thing that is becoming increasingly studied, which is good. Um, it's this idea called weathering. And it's kind of what it sounds like. It basically has to do with the toll that it takes on the body mm -hmm. when we are constantly facing stress that does not go away. Mm. And um, so for black women, for example, there's a lot of research that shows that this explains like the crisis in black maternal health. Okay. This issue, mm -hmm. um, it's basically that black women's bodies are older than their age mm. compared to white women. Um, so there's a, there's a lot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm just trying to process. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to process um, everything that you just yeah. said. So let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Um, so most of the participants, um, 
mostly black women. All black women. All black women. Yep. They, there is a direct link between stress or racial stress mm -hmm. and discrimination and body image. Yes. Okay. And yeah. the ability to lose weight. Yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. That's very interesting. I've never, I've never thought about that. Um, and as a person who has struggled in the past with losing mm -hmm. weight and how I feel about my body and all that, yeah. especially after treatment, I never, uh, I never connected the two. I didn't either. <laughs> wow. That's I so never did. That's the thing. Right. I set out to do like, oh, body image. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to, and I never thought that it was going to turn into what it did about wow. racism. And that just shifted everything. I was like, oh, this is so much bigger than what I thought I was trying mm -hmm. to understand. Now, having studied it for a longer period of time, it makes a lot of sense because it's almost like for black women in particular, the body is like the scene of the crime. Mm. Right. It's like that's you think about like comments that are racially motivated yes. because you're also a woman, a lot of it comes in the form of an appearance type comment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's like this idea of gendered racism and um, yeah, I mean, now we've got like the Crown Act, right, getting national attention. So this law essentially to protect people against hair discrimination. That's the fact that that's even Right, that we would need a law that's crazy. Yeah. Well, it speaks to like the magnitude of the problem. Right, um, right. That it's big enough that we need a law mm -hmm. to protect people That's in their crazy. schools and in their workplaces. Um, so, yeah. Wow. It's, yeah. It's big. It it's, it's, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. <laughs> it's a big oh, problem. And it can be, I mean, I think. So when I went, when I looked at the data that I collected it was a qualitative study. So it was these groups. I had like massive amounts of data, you code it, and then you make these models. Um, I was so excited, and also I was so devastated. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Because the outcome of the models was like, okay, so this is a problem, and then the next part of the problem was, well, how do black women, how do we deal with mm -hmm. it? And so the two ways that they dealt with it, no matter what they did, it was like a no-win situation. So they basically told me that, oh, you know, sometimes we just try to adapt. We try to fit in with mm -hmm. like white culture. And, you know, we straighten our hair. We do all these different things just to try to like um, appease mm -hmm. other people. But then we feel on the inside this conflict, this internal conflict. Yes. We feel like we can't be ourselves. Right. And that feels very stressful. Mm -hmm. Or some people say, no, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm staying true to myself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to wear my hair how I want. I'm going to show up the way that feels authentic for myself. But then they talked about the cost, especially women in corporate environments. They said they knew by doing that they were limiting their opportunities. Right. And that felt really stressful mm -hmm. as well. So it was like no matter what they did, they came to the same endpoint, which mm. is even more stress. And this is how they're trying to cope with the stress. Mm -hmm. So now it's like my mission <laughs> is to figure out, is there a way to equip Black women with tools to help to manage Yes. The realities yes. of this situation. Right. And the, the sad truth is, yes, we have the, the crown law, but right. um, the sad truth is, you know, there is probably a lot more time left before we yeah. are, you know, 100 percent um, accepted as our, our as yeah. our authentic selves. 
So um, I just, I appreciate you addressing the issue and trying to find a solution. Because the solution is not to just adapt. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or the solution is not to um, be yourself and then accept the cost. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, yeah. uh, that's very, very interesting um, and sad. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me sad. Um, yeah. I think about going on job interviews and um, I used to wear my hair like yours yeah. and I would um, brush it out, yeah. brush it back into a ponytail yeah. and just really, really being um, uh, focused on how I look. Yeah. And it's it was like second nature to me. I didn't think, yeah. you know, why am I doing this? I just thought this is what I have to do Absolutely. if I want to get this job. And that's what we've been told, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is what professional looks like. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's set by this Eurocentric standard. And that's what they talked about. It's like, okay, these are my choices. I have right. only bad options. Um, wow. That is amazing. <laughs> I am, uh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I think now is a good time to check the comments and see if you guys uh, have any questions for Dr. Boutte. Um, let's see here. So Robinia said, this is her answer to the icebreaker, mental health to me is just as important, if not more crucial than physical health. So just like you said about um, connecting the two and it all being one thing. So, hmm, we have a question. CY Fields is asking, does poor mental health contribute to other chronic health conditions? You kind of answered that earlier, but I would like to hear yeah. you elaborate a little bit more. That's a, that. a great question. It's very hard to answer it um, completely in the sense that we can't say that one thing causes the other. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do know, what we can say, is that there's a higher prevalence of mental health among people that are suffering from some kind of physical health mm -hmm. problem. Um, so the two things seem to go hand in hand, but it's like a chicken egg thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's very hard to say what came first, right, right? right? Like I was talking about earlier, if your mental health is not doing very well, then it might be hard to make it to a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. It might be hard to just engage in like health promoting behaviors that might protect you mm -hmm. from chronic illnesses. Um, at the same time, you could have been completely mentally healthy and then now you've got something going on in your body and that really just takes a toll on people. Yeah. So they're definitely connected, but it's hard to say if one thing always precedes the other. Right, right. Um, that's good. That's good. Um, okay, wow, you just, you just uh, blowing me out of the park here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like really like just processing everything you're saying and like, um, you're just providing just different ways to think about things like yeah. that I've never, I've never thought about, you know, the whole body image and um, the racial discrimination all being connected. I'm just like still, 
I'm like 30 seconds ago because I'm still <laughs> processing um, everything you're doing with your research. Um, so next question, do your studies in divinity influence the way you do your behavioral health research? If so, how? Good question. Um, I think it's easier for me to think about how they influence my clinical work. Um, so a lot of the things that I learned in seminary school, I use as a clinical psychologist. Okay. Um, it's sort of like different ways of talking about some of the same things. So for example, um, in seminary, we had to do like a six month chaplaincy residency. So mm. you're like a chaplain, a student chaplain in the hospital, um, and you do all kinds of things. But one of the things that we did is called a ministry of presence. Mm -hmm. And it's basically you're just sitting with someone. You just, they're suffering. Mm. Their loved one is in the emergency department or maybe they, you know, are the patient. And you go in, you introduce yourself. You know, you assure them that you don't have to do any particular spiritual thing like mm -hmm. pray or anything unless they want you to. And sometimes you just sit there quietly wow. with the person. Um, and so the sort of seminary theology standpoint on that was like, you are creating an opportunity for God's presence mm. in the room. I love that. Um, and so through that silence, like that's sort of God is the other entity that's present in the space. And so fast forward many years <laughs> to my clinical fellowship here at Rush in the Cancer Center. Um, that was often something we did too. We did not call it a ministry of presence, mm -hmm. but this is something as a therapist that I do all the time. You sit with silence with mm -hmm, the person. Mm -hmm. You just, we call it creating space. I love or that. Or leaving room. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of things like that that kind of translated like skills that I learned in that context that just showed up again mm -hmm. with different language and kind of wearing a different outfit, but it's the same thing. I think with the research, it probably gets at what you mentioned earlier, like with the trust and everything. Um, for me personally, since I identify as Christian, I make a strong effort to ensure that what I am doing, like in my professional roles, are aligned with my values. Mm. And so, because I know the history, mm -hmm. um, I try to be very thoughtful about how I'm going to approach my research methods. So there are some methods that um, I think honor people less mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and other methods that try to involve the community that you're hoping to help. Um, so that's a place where I think it has an influence. And then also just the spending time in black churches, growing up in them, right. and then spending time in them like in seminary, you see a lot of health issues um, and you do wonder, you know, like, okay, this is a place for healing, mm -hmm. you know, and, and encountering God and all of that. So why is there this discrepancy um, in terms of physical health, mental health, which is sometimes shunned in spaces like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, it motivates me to want to make sure to bring some of this information out into the spaces where I think, you know, some of the people who need the information the most could benefit, but it's just not a natural, they're not naturally going to encounter this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Wow. Um, 
what is it called when you are just silent with someone again? The in seminary we call it ministry of presence, but it's like as a therapist, you kind of call it, you know, you're creating room mm -hmm. or making space. Um, yeah. So I love that um, because I feel like you get to a conversation with the person and you kind of allow them to start it. And I feel like that makes them more comfortable with you, especially um, in the when you're in your role as a clinician. Yeah. Um, people are, you know, they're, they're afraid, you know, yes. they're afraid to talk, afraid to share. So just giving them that space and opportunity and you just sitting there like, OK, yep. it's just me and you and we're just going to be quiet until whatever comes to your mind. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure you've had experiences like that where someone just kind of just kind of yes. poured, you know, poured it all out. It's um, it's honestly it's remarkable. And I used to say it all the time, especially when I worked on the inpatient side of the hospital, that I can go in the room as a complete stranger. Um, and a lot of times in inpatient, the patient did not actually request to see a psychologist. So they were often surprised that I was there. So it was not always a welcome, like, it wasn't like a person in outpatient who's like, I want mental health right, treatment. Right, and so right. I am signing up to see a psychologist. This is like a person with a medical illness. And a lot of times that person's treatment team thinks that they could benefit mm -hmm. from seeing a psychologist. Um, so that could be incredibly intrusive. Mm -hmm. The person might feel all kinds of ways because of the stigma around psychology and mental health. Um, so a big part of my initial work was just to be disarming. Like, mm -hmm. I know that you may or may not want me here. Um, I also know you're going through a really difficult moment, possibly one of the worst moments of your entire mm -hmm. life. Um, and I just want to support you through that. Um, and I was always amazed and really impressed with people's bravery that they would share so much of themselves mm -hmm. with me, a complete stranger, after knowing me for about three minutes. Um, and it felt to me like a sacred space. Yes. Yes. And just to be able to, yeah, to mm -hmm. enter someone's life like that and that they allowed me to do it. Mm -hmm. It's very, um, yeah. Well, you know, some people, you never know if people have that space in their lives to talk. You know, some people just have everyone in their life is yeah. telling them what to do. You need to do this. You need to do that. Yeah. And you come in and you're just here to listen. Yeah. And um, that's just, it's so important. It goes back to the importance of um, having a healthy mind and um, yeah. relationships and stuff like that. So um, I just wanted to point out what you said about incorporating your personal faith into your work. Um, I think that's amazing. Um, I think that it makes you a human to your patients. Yeah. And um, I can just only imagine how wonderful the encounters are <laughs> between you and your patients, um, because that's, uh, a lot of clinicians don't do that. You know, they kind of just separate, you know, this is, yeah. this is work. Um, but you're working with people. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, um, you're kind to say that. Uh, it's, it, it, yeah. I think sometimes those pieces can feel at odds, mm -hmm. right? Because people are not signing up for a 
Christian psychologist. Mm -hmm. They're just mm -hmm. wanting to see a psychologist or in that case, not even wanting to see a psychologist. Um, so it's one of those things. But I think if the patient brings it into the room, then I'm like, great. Like this is, this can be something, um, it can be a strength. But I think for myself, I always know in my mind, like, okay, I think that I'm doing something that God called me to mm. do. So whether or not I ever explicitly bring up faith in the clinical encounter, it's just kind of where I'm coming from, mm -hmm. like for mm -hmm. myself. That's awesome. I love that. I, oh, just, <laughs> just, just gave me chills. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So moving right along. Um, so this is kind of a, a follow-up question, I would say. How does the Christian faith empower us to seek support for mental health? And if you could include any biblical scripture. Sure. Um, I was really struck my first year of my PhD program by how much overlap there was mm. between psychological concepts and scripture. Because at least in my understanding, as I was always taught, like science and religion are kind of like at odds, mm -hmm. we're pitted against one another. Um, and even now to this day, people in my sort of clinical academic world will be like, why did you go to seminary? Like, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I'm like, well, that's what I felt like I was supposed to do right. at that time. Like, that's what I felt God was calling me to do. So I did it. Um, but I was really, I remember so clearly like sitting in classes and thinking like, this is the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, again, it's wearing a different outfit, but it's the same idea. So for example, you know, there's a scripture that tells us to take our thoughts captive and put them under the obedience mm -hmm. of Christ. So much of clinical psychology is that, at least half of it. It's wow. just, what are you thinking about? And our fancy clinical word is cognitive restructuring, but it's taking a look. What am I thinking about? And is there a way to modify it, mm -hmm. to make it more adaptive? Um, you know, I think about Paul saying, think on these things. If there's anything that's of a good report, if there's anything, like if there's anything good in the world, like focus on that. There's all the scriptures that tell us to have the mind, that we have a mind of Christ in us. So I think, for me, like that's the most glaring connection is that there's a lot of scripture that deals with our mind and our heart. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what psychology deals with. Right. <laughs> it's right. Our, our mind and our heart. So our big psychology thing is essentially looking at your thoughts, your emotions and your behaviors. Um, and that is so much of what the biblical teachings are about. Like, what are you thinking? There's scripture that says to guard your heart. Right, mm -hmm. like what are your emotions that you need to be observing these things? You need to be managing them, um, and of course, in the Christian faith, you'd be sort of giving them to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, this obviously is not a part of psychology, but the idea that what you think about influences what you do and how you feel that is embedded in both things. So, I think there's definitely um, like a biblical precedent for mental health treatment for that reason, because there's so much emphasis on thoughts. Um, it's tough because I feel like historically the church has sort of viewed 
mental health care is something that is an opposition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really outspoken about encouraging people that you can do both. Right. It is right. great to do both things. You can go to church, you can pray, mm-hmm. you can speak with um, your ministry leaders, and you can also see a therapist. Yes, and right, there are right. even places that explicitly do Christian-based therapy. Mm. Um, so that is an option. And then as well, there are people like me. I don't do Christian therapy, but I'm a therapist and I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. So if my patient was to bring that into the room, then I would be happy to talk about the relationship between the two things and kind of how we can rely on our faith um, to help with our mental health. So Awesome. Wow. sorry (laughs) um so really quick i'm going to check the chat for questions again because uh since the last time i checked a few minutes ago um you just gave us so much so much to work with um so robinia is asking what's a great starting point to dealing with these shared issues, struggling with appearances, racial tensions based on our looks. So what's a good um, starting point on how to deal with those issues? That's a really good, That's a really good a question. very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think here. A good starting point. I think the first starting point you're already, you already did it, you're, you're on it, is mm. to acknowledge it. So that's kind of where we always start in psychology. Um, it's very hard to make any changes of any kind about something that we're not aware of. That's so true. So that's, that's true. like always step number one, mm. um, is to recognize that there's something that is not quite the way you want it to be. Um, so I think naming that and saying like, oh yeah, there's some discomfort here or like maybe there's body dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. Like this is something that I'm struggling with or having a problem with. Um, And then, you know, the real answer is like, that's what I'm trying to figure out Mm -hmm. (laughs) with my research. So Mm -hmm. that grant that got funded, that is my question. What would be the best tools? Like how do we equip people? So body dissatisfaction in general, we have a, pretty good toolkit for dealing with that but this is different very different this is different mm-hmm. and that's why I'm trying to research and understand it um, but in general body dissatisfaction we think about lots of things but one of the things we think about is like what are we taking in mm-hmm. content wise so something we'll often have people do um, is sort of assess like their social media feed, for example, mm-hmm. or the television programs, or what, the magazines. Or the, you know, we exist in a world where we're bombarded with images, yes, ideal images, mm-hmm. which is what body dissatisfaction is about in part. It's about um, a discrepancy between how we are and how we think we should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we have people do is see if they can kind of turn down the volume and all those images of what we should be because that's going in 
we're yeah. receiving that content. And even if we don't own a TV or a cell phone or anything like that, which all of us do, but even if we didn't, if we just walk down the street, there's billboards. Exactly. So it's literally everywhere. Everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So this is about the part that is in your control, like your own personal social media feed or the television programs you select. Is there a way to see, are there particular things that are what we will call triggering, right? So mm -hmm. are there certain images of certain people that when you see that, makes you feel really unhappy, really dissatisfied with yourself. Is there a way to watch less of that, see less of those mm -hmm. images? That's one of the things um, that people do kind of, that you could do on your own right now without, you know, you don't need any special guidance to be able to do something like that. But I think this racial piece of it, the answer is like we, like the field, we don't know. They are, people are just now doing research on like, race-related trauma, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or really it's racism, racism-related trauma. Um, what that means, how do we help people with it? How is it unique from mm -hmm. just general trauma, things like that? So I think that the answer is gonna probably be some type of combination of things that we generally do to treat body dissatisfaction, but also things that are specific to experiences of racism, sexism, discrimination across the board. Um, and a, a lot of it is processing, which basically is a fancy way of saying, like talking about your experience mm -hmm. with someone that is trusted and saying like, yeah, this happened mm -hmm. and this is how I felt. Um, so having someone, a space, whether it's a therapist or even just a friend, um, where you can go and say like, yeah, this happened, just felt a little ick mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. I don't even know why I think that's the hard thing about this like racialized by dissatisfaction like you say you never even necessarily thought about it in that way I hadn't either and when I did that initial research I was like wait so I went back in my mind I thought of so many experiences that I had had that fit with what my participants were describing I was like I guess that was an experience like mm -hmm. that I have one that's coming to mind right now I was um <laughs> I was in a grocery store this was when I was living in Richmond and I was shopping for produce and this woman, white woman walks up to me, but kind of like hurriedly. She was like, oh my gosh. I was thinking like maybe I knew her from somewhere. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. She was super excited. She was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And she walks up to me. At the time my hair was, um, it was quite short, but curly and it was like bleach blonde. <laughs> that sounds cute. <laughs> I'm getting ideas. <laughs> so that was how my hair looked at that time. Um, and so she runs up to me. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I'm like, oh yeah. She's like, your hair, it looks just like my dog's. Just like my dog's wow. hair. Um, and I don't even remember now. I think she told me what kind of dog it was and whatever. And she also like touched my hair and me, you know, without my permission. At the time I was just like, Okay. And I continued on, mm -hmm. you know, with my shopping experience. But I remember feeling bad. Yeah. Like, I felt bad about my hair. Yeah. And I felt bad about myself mm -hmm. in that moment. Like, oh, I, you know, my hair looks like a dog's mm -hmm. hair. Um, and that that can't be good. Right? Right, right. There's no way that that's a, a compliment. Although she was excited mm -hmm. when she told me about this. Well, I think about little things like that. Like, that's the kind of stuff that we haven't there's not research that addresses like, okay, if we know black women are gonna have these experiences, then what, like, what would be the right 
thing to do to cope with something like right, that in that moment. Right. Like, what would you actually, what could you do? What could I have done, you mm -hmm. know, whenever that was to reduce the ick or the lasting? And you have to think, this is a population that has, like, numerous, this is happening all the time, like, over years, mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm. it accumulates. It's not just, like, a one-off. Um, so then what do you do, right? right? If you've got someone that's had a hundred experiences like this, how do we help that person like psychologically, right. um, to deal with, uh, the trauma and the experience of that, but then also in the future, how can they be equipped mm -hmm. to feel empowered in that moment to say or do something that feels better mm -hmm. than just walking away? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what feels best. I don't know. Um, but I think that's the work. Wow. Well, a very, very long-winded answer. No, it was great. Probably not that It was helpful. great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we are nearing the end, uh, sadly. Um, but I was wondering if you could take us through the 478 breathing exercise. By the way, this is going to be up on the website as our community resource, alivefaithnetwork.org slash resources. Um, but Dr. Boutte is going to give us a quick, um, well, well, you know what I'm trying to say. She's going to show us how to do it. <laughs> We're going to practice it. Um, okay. Get ready. <laughs> so just a brief, like, what this is and what the point of this is. Um, most people have probably heard of the fight or flight experience, response that we have. Um, and basically, it's the body's way of responding to a threat in the environment. And so when we perceive some kind of threat, we get scared or anything like that, this system turns on the body. And when it turns on, a whole bunch of stuff happens. Uh, one of the things that happens is our breath, instead of being kind of deep and full, it gets really like shallow and quick, this quick sort of chest breaths. Um, our blood pressure goes up pulse goes up, all kinds of things. Our memory systems and planning, that all turns way down. Um, that's why we can't remember things that happen when we're stressed. So a lot of stuff happens. And the body does not like to stay in this state. The body likes to be in the opposite state, which is kind of our resting normal state that we should be in. So we have this tool, which is amazing that this is even a thing that works. Um, but it's basically, a, it's like a nervous system hack. So you do this breathing technique and it actually resets that process. It will slow your breathing, your heart rate, blood pressure comes down. So it's a very powerful tool that we have. Um, the sort of one that we generally teach is called 478 breathing, but you don't have to use those increments. That might not be appropriate for you. The ratio is more important. So you could do, you know, three, six, five if you wanted to, but we'll do 478. So it's best if you kind of sit up straight, feet flat on the ground, you kind of want your hands in like a sort of a comfortable position. And all we're gonna do is breathe in for the count of four, then we're gonna hold for the count of seven and then breathe out for the count of eight. So I'm gonna take Nurse Jasmine through it okay. and I'm gonna do the counting for you so you don't have to worry about counting. Okay. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Should I close my eyes? I like to close my eyes when I do it, but you definitely don't have to. Only if okay. you feel comfortable. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So we're going to start with the breathing in. One, two, three, four, and holding. Three, four, five, six, seven, and out for eight. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, and out for eight. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, and out for eight. 
two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We're gonna go one more time. You're gonna breathe in for four, two, three, four, holding for seven, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and out for eight, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Wow, I forgot where I was for a second. <laughs> so we like to, that you know, generally you want to do it at least three or four times. And it's good to practice it when you're not under stress. Okay. So you want to like set a daily practice, maybe in the morning or at night, just run through it. So that way, when you are in a stressful moment, it's at the ready. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be trying to remember how to do it when stress is around. Because right. your memory is not going to be great in that moment. Um, but if you have stuff, you have like an Apple Watch on. So you can actually watch your heart rate drop, drop. as wow. you do this. It's like, it's amazing. Um, it's a very powerful tool. And you can use it anytime. A lot of times people fall asleep if they keep mm -hmm. going through it. So mm -hmm. you can use it for that. Or just anytime there's a moment of stress or discomfort and you just feel like you need a little... Reset. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's going to be, there's a, a resource about yes. it. Yes. So. so we actually, this is what the resource looks like on the website. So um, it just takes you through how to do it. And then there's some more information on the back. This resource is free. So go and download it, fold it up, put it in your wallet and start practicing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Boutte, for joining oh, us. This was great. Um, this was great. Thank you so much. Um, and you guys, join us. We will be having a third episode next month. Details to come. Bye, guys. <laughs>